0: It just took me getting comfortable with the job and saying, you don't have to be perfect. You will not get fired for small mistakes. You have to take the risk to learn. I think that we forget that learning is risky. You're learning to do something you haven't done before. And so that requires a commitment to not being perfect.
1: Welcome to the Early Career Moves Podcast, the show that highlights remarkable young professionals of color killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel Wenninger, proud Texas Latina, daughter of immigrants and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we dive into a special guest story and hear all about their challenges, milestones and lessons learned. If you're a young professional of color and you're feeling lost in your career or just a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 23 of the Early Career Moves podcast. Today, I'm so excited to be sharing Timka Lockhart's story with you. But before I get there, I want to just give a quick reminder that we are going to be wrapping up season one of the podcast at episode 30, which will air early July. And at that point, I'm going to be taking about 10 weeks off to have my own little summer break. My birthday's coming up in August. I'm also getting married at the end of summer, so really excited to unplug a little bit. But don't worry, I'll definitely be back in September, and I have lots of fun, exciting episodes in the works, and just looking forward to continuing to improve upon and make this podcast the best young professional BIPOC resource out there. So today's episode features... Timka Lockhart, she is an amazing woman who is also in the career space. She is the founder of Courageous Leaps, and she's also a Wharton MBA grad. She is a career coach on the side and helps people transition into new roles, but her full-time gig is at American Express, where she's in a leadership development program. On this episode, Timka shares what it's been like to be an HBCU grad who's originally from Georgia and was able to crack into one of the most elite industries for her first job in investment baking. I will make sure to link in the show notes the different programs that she mentions that she was a part of that helped her get there. She talks about what it was like to be the only woman, the only black woman in the room, how she had to kind of get over her own fears, insecurity, self-doubt to be able to perform at a high level, and she also will talk about how her Wharton MBA pushed her to become a stronger version of herself so really excited to share her story with you thanks for listening y'all hey everyone i'm really excited to have timka lockhart on today's episode welcome timka
0: thank you thank you so much for having me i'm excited to uh, join you today Yeah. So before we jump into
1: introductions, I want the audience to know how you and I connected. So Timka and I actually crossed paths the summer before we both started our MBA programs through MLT, Management Leadership for Tomorrow, where they were helping us kind of prepare for the recruiting process that would take over you know, in business school. So I'm sure we'll go into that a little bit later. But it was just really cool to to cross paths. And we both have a passion for helping people navigate their career paths, especially as people of color. So really excited to dive into this conversation. But yeah, Timka, why don't you just share with the audience a little bit about yourself, just anything to kind of give the audience a sense of your background?
0: Sure. So I'm Timka, everyone. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I'm currently recording this podcast. I'm a Black woman. I think that's actually pretty integral to my story and the story we'll walk through today. I got my undergrad degree in finance from a really small HBCU, Alabama A&M, and HBCU being a historically Black university. And then went on in my career to work in finance and then a couple other things we'll talk about later today. And yeah, I would say, you know, a major theme in my life so far has been resiliency and showing up for yourself, because I believe if you show up for yourself, you literally can do anything in the world. But half of the battle is showing up. So that's about me.
1: Yeah, so let's kind of rewind a little bit to those HBCU days. Tell us where you went and also how did that experience impact you being in a historically Black college university?
0: So I, first let me say, I grew up in Atlanta and the neighborhood I grew up in in Atlanta was actually pretty rare compared to the average American in that my neighborhood was all Black. So we had Black police officers, black teachers, black, you know, government officials, like everyone was black in this little town. And so I think that first that shaped my worldview in that it was an understanding that you literally can be anything you want to be. And so I think that's something that a lot of minority black and brown kids don't see. Um, And I was fortunate enough to grow in in this kind of environment. So that's one. And then going to HBCU, I feel like it was just a continuation of seeing people that looked like me and having a level of support that I'm not sure that everyone gets at a, you know, a predominantly white institution. So my teacher's, would call my cell phone if I missed class, right, and say, what happened today? Or would, you know, talk to an administrator that I was close to and say, hey, Temka didn't come to XYZ, right? And so you knew that you had people looking out for you and what pushed you to be your best in an environment that was really small and tight-knit, which I think is, you know, we can't measure the the impact of that.
1: Yeah, I so I went to an all women's
0: college and it has mm.
1: it's it's a similar concept of being in this environment that is not really representative of the real world. But what's really cool is that it, it kind of flips everything on its head, right? Like everyone who's a leader on campus was a woman. And so for right. you, it was like a black person. And so it's just so it was freeing for me to be in that environment. And it made me fearless when I did go into the workplace after college, mm. because I was like, women speak up, like women are just as capable as anyone else. Did you feel like you also reap that
0: benefit? I did. And I, I do think that on the flip side, I also was very naive In terms of going into internships and being like, oh, this is what the real world is and realizing that you, in fact, will probably be the only Black face in the room and dealing with that reality, I think, was something else I had to kind of tackle. And I joke and say that, you know, while I was in college, I worked at a local mall and I worked at the Ann Taylor store and working at that Ann Taylor store gave me a much bigger viewpoint of the world and allowed me to expand in a different way. So I think that yes, HBCU life absolutely would, you know, 1000% would do it again. Do not regret. And I'm grateful to also have some of those other experiences that helped prepare me for the world too.
1: Yeah. Okay. So tell us about your first job out of college. How did you find it? How did you end up going in that direction?
0: So my first role, full-time role out of school, I actually went into investment banking. So I worked at Barclays, full time where I worked in debt capital markets and I covered tech media and telecom companies. And so my journey to investment banking was one of, was very interesting. We mentioned MLT earlier in this conversation and I want to plug MLT again because I did management leadership for tomorrow's undergrad program, which is called career prep. And <laughs> that program, I, I, you apply before your, or you apply the summer during your sophomore year and you start before your junior year and they kind of carry you through graduation. But that program on top of a couple of others that I'll also mention really opened up the world to me. So I did MLT. I also did another program called Thurgood Marshall College Scholars. And that program focuses on public HBCU students and opening up, you know, internship opportunities for them. So I did that program. And then finally, I also did uh, SEO's <clears throat> career prep program, which is SEO standing for Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. So I guess a real quick thing there is I found places and resources to help me, and I didn't know where I was going. I did not. <laughs> I didn't know that investment banking was working on it. Where I was going to end up, however, I was like, I, I know I need to get out of Alabama, and I need to find places to help me do it. So I went through those three programs, and I think that. Game changer for me was having intense mentorship and in some ways sponsorship across those three programs to support my career and thinking about what I wanted to do after school. And so investment banking came up as something that my MLT coach Valerie Griffin was like, you should actually, I want to challenge you to apply to do this. The way she did that was applying to SEO. I got into SEO. And at the time, SEO, if you got into SEO, you were guaranteed an investment banking internship. And so they don't do that anymore. But back then, that was how it worked. And so I got into SEO. I got the internship and SEO gave me a a network of mentors who literally held my hand throughout the summer experience. And I was also fortunate enough to get placed on a desk with another black woman, which was very rare. And so all of these forces came together. I got the full time offer. After uh, graduating, I moved to New York City. And joined the investment bank full time. And that was an entirely different experience. I think being an intern versus working full time is two very different things. But that was my journey into getting on Wall Street.
1: That is such an incredible journey because those spaces are so elite and closely guarded. Like I remember when I was in college, only like the top of the top, like GPAs could even be considered for iBanking. And I'm sure you encountered that when you finally started full time is just like your peers were coming from these probably very elite institutions. Maybe there wasn't a lot of diversity. And so I just remember in college being like, wow, that's intense to try to to get into iBanking.
0: No, I think that's exactly right. So I will say SEO did an excellent job preparing the interns, like we had to move to New York two weeks early before our internship, and they put us through like a boot camp. And it was like, this is what you have to you know, this is what you're going to expect. And so I feel like even that preparation gave us a leg up, right? Like we knew how to use Excel. (laughs) We, we, we knew the basics of accounting, like they were ensuring that all of these black and brown kids knew exactly what was going to happen. And of course, I was prepared for the fact that I probably would have been one of the few you know, black women in the room at that young of an age. And so I think that preparation did carry forward into full time, but I underestimated how different it would be, right? So in investment banking, the culture really depends on the group you're placed in. It's not necessarily the bank. It's really about the team that you're on. And so one team could be very different from another team. And I think that was something that like bopped me upside the head when I started working full time.
1: So there are a lot of things that are very challenging about working in investment banking and working in finance. And so some things that come to mind are the hours. So just, I'm sure you worked weekends, You know, there's just an incredible amount of time you're putting in. And then secondly, the fact that it's not only a white space, but it's also a heavily male-dominated space. So I'm curious if that played into at all your experience. And then of course, just like, all of the skills that you had to probably develop really quickly to be successful. So what was the biggest challenge for you?
0: I would say, so when I joined full-time, I was joined a team that was majority white and all male. I was the only woman on the team. I was reportedly the first five woman that had been on that team in five years. And quite frankly, it really was a boys club really. And so this was back in 2013. So this was right before some of these regulations that they have around investment banking were coming into place. And I said regulations like no Friday staffing, right? You can't get put on a new project on a Friday or, you know, you have to sign out X amount of times a week or something like that. And when I joined, those regulations weren't necessarily in place. And so the team was really small and we worked really hard. We had a lot of volume coming through this desk. And it often felt like I was, and they'll describe it to you this way, joining an investment banking or starting this career is almost like drinking from a fire hose. There's so much coming at you. And on top of that, I was the only woman of color on my team. I was the only woman on my team. And so I often felt isolated in a lot of ways. And some of that being you know, my own self-isolation, right? Not feeling confident in my abilities. And I think on top of that, some of that was just understanding that I wasn't necessarily as prepared as I could have been or should have been to take on such a large role. And, you know, being, especially being a woman, I often felt like I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. They probably think I'm dumb. I can't laugh at their jokes. I don't know anything about football, like all of these little things that compounded upon themselves and I think really affected my first year in terms of performance.
1: Yeah. So what ended up helping you overcome some of that? Was it like a, a specific coach or a sponsor, or like what what helped you get out of your head a little bit?
0: It definitely took me, let's say it, it wasn't a six month learning curve for me. It was like an eight or nine month learning curve, I'll be completely honest. It just took me getting comfortable with the job and saying you don't have to be perfect, right? You will not get fired for small mistakes. You have to take the risk to learn. I think that we forget that learning is risky. You're learning to do something you haven't done before. And so that requires a commitment to not being perfect. I felt like in my career, I was trying to be perfect so much that it was holding me back from actually learning what I needed to learn because I was so worried about doing the things that I actually knew how to do. <laughs> and it was almost like an analysis paralysis. So for me, it was time that helped me get up to speed. It was time and it was having, you know, other women, even the women at Barclays and some of the folks that I knew pour into me and say, you can do this, right? Just relax and listening to, to that advice.
1: Yeah, I like that term analysis paralysis, because yes, I think that when the mindset is not there, our minds can go into panic mode. And then when you're panicked, you actually start making more mistakes than you would
0: normally would have, right? That's yeah, that's exactly it is we allow panic to literally override our common sense. (laughs) And we have to be able to calm ourselves down and say, you know i think the other piece too was like am i able to ask for help right i should be able to admit that i don't know something i think that was a huge thing for me was that when i was learning new things i was so focused on being perfect that i would then forget what i learned 3 or 4 months later and it was like we've gone through this right and you learned it the first time but you were so nervous so afraid that you didn't really marinate on what you were taught and so i think that also hindered me a lot in those early months was the fear held me back from even growing into where I wanted to go. And I'll add this. I think that the game changer for me was when I started in the group, I had a co-analyst and we were on the same level. And a year into the, so this was technically a two-year program, right? An analyst program. And he left a year early. And so when he left, it was literally like a sink or swim situation where it was like, well, Timka, you are it. You either going to you either (laughs) have to get with the program or (laughs) not. And I'm at the time, of course, I was really upset that he was leaving because I felt like I was just getting my sea legs. I'm just now getting it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was like, this is the point where you have to turn it up. There is no option here unless you want to quit, too. I think that was was really what, you know, put the battery in my back in terms of you can do this. And I proved to myself, I was able to do it. And so I left the bank feeling great about my performance. And I'm not sure that would have happened if he had stayed, because I would have been able to rely on him.
1: Okay, so tell us about your decision to leave iBanking. I know that a lot of the times people try to go into private equity and like hedge fund work or whatever. I'm sure there were lots of options you could have considered. What did you decide to do maybe at the end of those two years?
0: Sure. So I realized that I had spent two years learning a lot about capital markets, a lot about debt and bonds and kind of treasury work. And I wanted to learn more about overall companies, like what is the company strategy? Right. And so I realized that I started to look for jobs in like strategy development, ultimately, because I did not see myself continuing to work as hard as I was working in investment banking. I I just couldn't, I wasn't in love with it. And I also did not want to get what they call the golden handcuffs. So when you start to get a certain amount of money, it's harder to walk away, right? It's it's the feeling of, Oh, I can't leave. Right. Because this is the amount of money I'm making. And um, especially being that young, started to look for strategy roles and I'll tell the story of how I got into my next job. basically, I was like, I'm willing to, to to take a pay cut and just to learn. And actually, one of the jobs I applied for was with MLT. I applied for strategy partnership role. And so when I interviewed with the, for the job, and I interviewed with this person, this amazing mentor of mine named Marcus Shaw. And he's a mentor now, but at the time I didn't know him. And I interviewed with him and I explained my story and what I was looking to do, looking to learn. And he basically told me during the interview, he was like, listen. I don't think this is the right role for you. However, I know the right role for you. I know somewhere where you can go. So he connected me to uh, some folks over at a firm called the Brunswick Group. And the Brunswick Group is a small crisis management and corporate public relations firm. And at that firm, I was able to really grow and learn about corporate strategy overall, corporate PR, how do we respond to these broad issues companies are facing. And In that connection, I was able to immediately get a first round interview and really apply some of the skills I learned in banking and a completely different skill set. And it wasn't something I ever thought I was going to do. Didn't know that I was interested in it, but it was this is a this is an opportunity to learn something new and to grow your skill set. Don't turn it down.
1: Wow. And it's great that you were open to something different, right? Like, I think sometimes people get really caught up in like having this very linear path about, oh, well, this is what I should do next. But it sounds like you were pretty open to exploring. And that's what took you to that next opportunity.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Okay. So, was this like an Olivia Pope type situation? Like, what <laughs> kind of things are you working on?
0: So I think that everyone external thought of it as Olivia Pope, but in reality, maybe the partners at the firm were Olivia Pope Inc., you know, everything. (laughs) But at my level, it was more of writing documents, drafting talking points, doing a lot of research, supporting especially C-suite executives across industries in terms of, you know, I need to get my CEO on CNBC, for example. What does he say? In response to Bill Ackman trying to take over his company, what exactly does he say? <laughs> or, you know, my CEO, uh, their company is releasing earnings next week. What does she say to CM- CNBC host about their earnings performance? What are reporters saying? What is the general news that these companies need to be aware of. So in a lot of ways, I'll be honest, I worked just as hard as I did in investment banking, but it was just a different kind of work. I think it was a kind of work that required a different brain in terms of critical thinking, and especially around being able to write and write well. I don't think that I really learned that ability in banking, but of course, in corporate PR, your talking points need to be perfect. The pub press release needs to be on point. You have to be really on top of the details and it taught me a different skill that I did not get in banking.
1: Okay, so now let's transition over to the MBA journey chapter, which I'm sure was like a whole thing for you mm-hmm. as it was for me. Were you always sold on
0: the idea of going to business school and getting your MBA? I did not realize business school was an actual thing until I started working in investment banking and my director at the time, Luke, was an Harvard grad. He was ex-military. He left the military, went to Harvard, and then worked in investment banking. And I think he was one of the first people that I ever met or was really like, oh, whoa, this is actually an option. So for me, it was always curious to me that he was always so close to his rugby club. Like He was like, I'm going out to drinks with the rugby friends from you know his Harvard business school days. And I think that was... Something that really made an impression on me was like, oh, he's still really close to these folks from grad school. That's interesting. And then I felt as I met clients from both investment banking and even in the PR world, a lot of them had these really impressive grad schools. And then finally, when it came time to kind of really get serious, I had done investment banking, right? I had worked in PR, I was like, I need to continue the through line, right? If I want to do something different, how do I get there? And so for me, it was going back to school. Yeah. So I'm
1: assuming you did MLT's MBA prep program. Is that right? Yes, I did
0: MLT MBA prep. Correct.
1: Yeah. Like that's like a two year program. Is that right? Or is mm-hmm. it like
0: a year and a half almost? Or Similar to the undergrad program. It really, I think I would say it's two years, I guess, all in and I kind of joke and say that was actually one of the hardest points in my career was being great at the PR job, because I'll be honest. I think, again, just like investment banking, it took me a while to get up the learning curve and to be really good at the PR stuff. So doing PR responding to clients, working on a client schedule, right? So it's not like a regular nine to five. It's like, you got to be up at six. You're going to be up at six, right? And studying for the GMAT while working was just incredibly difficult for me. So I, you know, I'll share this. I took the GMAT five times to get to school. I believe because my, you, yeah. My my goal was not just to get into school. My goal was to get in with a scholarship. And yeah, maybe the third time I could have gotten into somebody's school, but was that good enough to get some money? No. <laughs> so it was just really, I think it really came down to time management and being extra disciplined about how I did everything. So I think when I got really serious about the DMAT those last couple of times, I stopped going out. I stopped drinking. I would show up to work early, to do my work early, to be finished with work by five, so then I could sit at my desk for three extra hours and study. Like it was no joke because I knew if I did not leave the firm, I probably would have been kind of pigeonholed into PR forever. And that's not what I necessarily want.
1: Yeah, it's I had a similar experience. So I did not take it five times, but I took it twice. But there was like a pretty significant difference between those mm-hmm. two scores. And you're right. It, the balance is so Hard. I remember getting up early doing two or three hours before work, doing work, and then in the evening you're doing that again, the weekends. It's just, it's a lot.
0: Yeah. And so there's actually, I'm I'm reading this book called Win the Day by Mark Batterson. And he said something in the book that I wanted to call out. And I don't know if you're religious or anyone out here is religious, but I'll say this in the book, it's a book about the top seven habits we need to develop, so on and so forth. And one of the habits he has, it's called eat the frog. So doing the hardest things of your day first, ensuring that you're really intentional about these hard things. And the tagline for eat the frog is, if you want God to do the super, you've got to show up in the natural. If you want the universe to do the super or whatever you believe in, right? If you want these super amazing, awesome things to happen, you still have to do the work to get there. And I feel that kind of theme is underlined during that that period in my life where it was like, I have to be really intentional about where I want to be. And I don't want anything that I've done to hold me back, right? I want to control all my controllables. So I can control how well I do on the test, right? Like I can control my effort. I can control how well I write my essays. I can control, you know, the, the people I ask for recommendations. I can set them up for success to Right, really positive things about me. And so I had to take the mindset of I don't want to count myself out the game by not giving my best.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you made it to Wharton and congrats. I'm sure that was such an amazing milestone to hit for you. What was it like when you like were making your decision? I remember you were feeling a little split between Wharton and another school. I don't remember which one it was.
0: <laughs> yeah, I you know, so I applied to seven schools. I got into 6 in all 6 that I got into I got money to go whether it be a full ride or a half ride or some kind of scholarship amount and so I think for me it really came down to the deciding factor was where will I be challenged and pushed the most to grow because I knew for example if I came to a school in Atlanta well, I'm from Atlanta, I could just go home every weekend, right? Like, I needed to be sure that I was going to be pushed. And I felt like Wharton was really the place that would push me. And it did. I'm not gonna lie to you. It really did. And I absolutely do not regret my decision. I think it was the best decision I made for myself.
1: Yeah. While you were at Wharton, did you ever feel like imposter syndrome come up for you? Maybe as you were like recruiting or
0: in the academic Mm -hmm. field? Did that come up? Definitely came up, I would say, in the summer before Wharton. So summer before Wharton, I really was like, I'm going to be a human capital consultant. I wrote my essays about it to get into business schools. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And then I realized, oh, actually, sis, you don't have the skill set that you need to be good at that job, right? And this was pre-Wharton. And so I think that was my first run in with, oh, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought. And then even at Wharton, there are some classes like microeconomics where I was felt completely underwater and I have a finance undergrad. And I was like, I have a finance degree. Why is this so hard? But the reality is it's just hard, right? And I had to get comfortable with the fact that, you know, you might've been a big fish in a small pond, but the pond will get bigger, right? And so- you will not necessarily always be the big fish and you need to get comfortable with not being the expert all the time. And so I felt like imposter syndrome just came up a lot in the classroom. And that's not to say I didn't get, you know, pretty okay grades, but that also goes to show that I just had to work really hard to get those grades. And there's nothing wrong with that either.
1: So tell us a little bit about Courageous Leaps. Tell us how it started and what you do now with clients.
0: Sure. So Courageous Leaps is my side baby. It's my my little side project where I run a small boutique career coaching business, supporting clients across the country and helping them think about transitioning their careers, positioning themselves, and really focusing on the narrative we tell in our resumes, our cover letters, and even on LinkedIn and how we present ourselves in the digital age. And I started this business because As we mentioned earlier, I'm the product of like SEO, MLT, Thurgood Marshall Fund, like all of these different programs which have helped me, really pushed me along the way. But those programs aren't necessarily open to a lot of people, right? You have to apply, you have to be selected, and you have to know about it. You know, I feel like there is a lack of knowledge around our careers, around the stories we tell. Um, and how we tell them to other people. And so I feel like that is one of my purposes is to help people tell their stories. Right. And help people figure out what is the next step. So that's Courageous Leaps. That's why I started it. And I've been able to help, you know, 50 something people so far in terms of resumes, cover letters, narrative development, digging into what is it that you want to do and why do you want to do it?
1: Mm -hmm. And that work is so needed, especially for people of color that are navigating this space, or when they're like the first in their families to be doing career stuff, right? I think that's great that you're doing this. Where can people find
0: you online? Sure. So I am on Instagram at Courageous Leaps. You can also find me on my website, www.timkalockhart.com. And then I'm also on Twitter at timka underscore lockhart and yeah that's those are the major places
1: thank you so much timka for being with us today really appreciate you
0: of course thank you so
1: much for having me thanks for tuning into the early career moves podcast be sure to visit ecmpodcast.com to join the conversation access the show notes and become a part of our newsletter community and if you love this episode head over to itunes to subscribe rate and leave a review talk to you next week